Hello, and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, um, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Chris Dorsey. I am an assistant professor of engineering at Smith College. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. I would like to go back to your child. Do you, do you have any memories of interested in science or technology when you were a child? Yeah, so um, there's a very special type of machine mm-hmm. that is in museums in Chicago, where I grew up, yeah. called the Moldorama. Mm-hmm. And the Moldorama is this, it's kind of a see-through injection molding machine where you, um, you put some money in and it injects uh, molten wax into molds and, and molds it into a dinosaur or a spaceship or whatever right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this was sort of, well, I definitely thought it was a robot when I was little, but that yeah. was um, my first experience with robotics and, and one of the things that got me interested in engineering and robotics as a kid. Sounds very cool, yeah. So if I ask you what is the first robot you built, if you remember, and what is the feeling you had at this time? I don't know if I built something that that would universally be considered a robot mm-hmm. until I was in college. Um, I was a coach for the um, for a U.S. first robotics team mm-hmm. uh, at, a, at a high school in Boston, and I helped them build their robot for competition. And it was uh, really exciting to see this kit of parts go uh, get built into a robot by these students yeah. um, over the course of six weeks. Mm-hmm. So that's an also interesting point about while you're working, do you remember any simple, beautiful equation that inspires you? I think an equation that I end up using all the time and that I think is really simple and beautiful, but mm-hmm. also kind of profound is uh, Gauss's law mm-hmm. so that we can relate the electric field and the um, the electric flux to the amount of charge inside of space. Just like visualizing that is so cool to me. That's cool. Yeah. So I'm curious to ask you how you came to the robotics when you started about the robotics uh, field. The actual start. So uh, my work in my work in robotics came out of my uh, PhD work in microelectromechanical systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had been working on uh, fabricating and designing these microscale accelerometers and chemical sensors. Um, and when I moved to my position at Smith, I started working in soft materials and really got interested in the applications of, of soft and active materials, particularly for soft robotics. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to ask you, Chris, because I think that's a question we have for all our guests, how you define soft robotics from your perspective. There are many definitions, but it seems that we don't agree on a certain definition. So what is the definition you think maybe sold soft robotics from your experience? Um, I think there's definitely the materials definition yeah. about uh, you could use using a material that has below a particular uh, elastic modulus, but um, mm-hmm. also thinking about, um, you know, particular mechanisms that are made out of rigid materials, but behave in a, a compliant or soft manner. 
Um, I also kind of think fits within soft robotics um, or like Tensegrity robots uh, as another example. So um, I think anything that behaves in um, in a compliant continuum manner, uh, rather yeah. than as that can be easily models discrete joints, falls within soft robotics. Mm -hmm. So I think also one of the important thing about uh, what could be the important question you have to consider. So if you're working in the soft side of just material science, what do you think if you're still listening to you, what are the most important question you have to consider while you start your research? Um, I think one of the most important questions that I consider in my research, particularly from a materials point of view, yeah. is is how we how we can design these with these new material sets to get the uh, exact performance that we mm -hmm. want. Um, so because these materials are, are much more nonlinear yeah. in behavior and um, have a lot of viscoelastic properties and things like that, yeah. um, dialing in exactly the performance that we want. Um, given whatever parameters we're using is a, is a much more exciting challenge, I think. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very interesting point about designing, because I think you mentioned very interesting points about uh, the nonlinearities and sometimes this material could be anisotropic. So it is really complex. So for designing, how, how do you see the community handle the design of a smart material? Do you think there is a missing pieces about how we design so that we can get the exact performance, for example, that's a question we have when we have design actuator, for example, um, ionic conductive polymer, for example, that example we have been working on. We have higher sickness, we get higher forces, but low bandwidth. So it's always a trade-off between the mechanical performance and response time. So when you mean about designing and getting exact response, do you think there's a still shortage in that area about getting that desired performance according to design? Do you think there's something missing here? Um, I don't. I don't know if there's a piece of knowledge that is missing. Well, I, you know, new knowledge is being developed all the time. Yeah. But I think even more collaborations and connections between uh, different domains and different folks in material science and electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, um, and chemical engineering. So kind of f fusing those different domains of knowledge um, and understanding how to go from. Uh, a material with really interesting anisotropic properties mm -hmm. to an actuator um, requires a lot of conversation between people in different areas. Um, and so I think figuring out how to make that communication seamless um, and that everyone can can work together on this project is is something that soft robotics as a community is is figuring out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the buy-in, but do you think also maybe the modeling plays a role in designing how, which level of scale of modeling we have to develop? Do you think that's also, or um, it's not significant in designing so much, the modeling part for understanding? So, so I think, on, I think mo modeling is going to be really critical for understanding these properties. Yeah. Um, but I think modeling is something that um, is is something that we're we're developing as well. So there's it's it's not like there are established off-the-shelf models always for these things. Um, and so I think modeling uh, is a critical piece um, yeah. that we can also begin to integrate into the design. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to ask you, what do you think maybe area or direction of research is very promising, but maybe the community seems to disagree 
or doesn't give much attention to it at the moment? I think I have been, rather than uh, an area of research that doesn't get a lot of interest, I've been impressed yeah. by the diversity of interests um, within soft robotics. So the different people working in the space, the different problems they're trying to address, mm -hmm. um, as well as the different approaches that we're ta they're taking. Um, so I, I wouldn't point to something that I think is, is understudied, um, but maybe perhaps something that is, is underappreciated is working with um, mm -hmm. different people on the same problem. What do you mean? Uh, so I mean, for example, um, you might see a lot of papers in um, chemical society journals yep. or in um, materials engineering journals or in robotics journals. Um, but it feels like that knowledge is, um, is a bit focused on a particular application or a particular problem mm -hmm. um, rather than perhaps the, the, the larger application. So what can we do with this new material um, mm -hmm. rather than, than demonstrating that uh, this, the, the mechanical or the material properties of this? Uh, mm -hmm. Or we've got great, we've got this strain sensor that can measure strain uh, with a gauge factor of 10,000. Yeah. Um, but how does that apply to measuring um, a, a particular deformation of a, a joint on a person? Mm -hmm. Is that any better than a gauge factor of 10 or 100? So uh, mm -hmm. more studies like that, perhaps. I think that's very uh, important point. And I'm, I'm, I would like to ask you, do you think Where's this problem? Is this problem or issue come from? Uh, is this, yeah, why do you think that's happening like that? Or why there's no more attention to uh, other uh, approaches or maybe uh, digging deep in and understanding and designing something that could meet our needs? Where's this problem come from and what could be a solution for that? So I think the solution is, um, is already there in soft robotics, which mm -hmm. is seeing people uh, from different research areas and communities work together on these problems. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's it's something that takes time to develop um, kind of a, a shared basis, a shared language, uh, a shared set of standards. Uh, but I, I think that is also happening. I think the root cause of it is that, um, you know, if you if you look back to uh, science and engineering in the 50s yeah. um, or the, the 70s or the 80s, people were working in their lab. There wasn't as much collaboration between groups as there mm -hmm. is now. Um, and so I think collaboration is is one of the ways of the future that we're going to see more and more collaboration between different groups, between different domains of knowledge. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I, I, mean, I don't know if you agree with that, but I think maybe because of competition for funding for, I think that's something maybe very interesting to mention that sometimes there's a competition with the same uh, topic maybe, and there's less funding or grants of maybe this competition happening. Do you think also maybe one of the problem or that's something completely different? I, I think funding is a, is a big part of the question and I can't speak for uh, what funding looks like worldwide, but, yeah. you know, in the United States, it seems like, um, from my view as an assistant professor, at yeah. least, it seems like there is more focus um, from the NSF and, and from other funding sources towards um, 
towards applications and, and mm -hmm. towards um, encouraging collaboration than there is on uh, single PI efforts. Yeah. And so I think funding can can encourage competition between people, but it can also be used as a tool to, to drive collaboration. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah, I think that's also interesting because I think uh, when you as a student, I think when you're listening to you, when we have a project, do you think we have to be product driven or technology driven? If you have four or five years project, from your expertise, do you think which level or which direction is, is much appreciated maybe or maybe fruitful in the end of the journey of this uh, five or four years is a product driven or technology driven do you recommend i think technology driven um and even a level under that i would say fundamentals driven mm -hmm. as well um, yeah. i think there's there's a use for all three um so it's certainly exciting and and gets you through a phd kind of the day-to-day -day if you have a focus on oh, I want to demonstrate uh, a robot that has this capacity or a sensor that can measure uh, yeah. this deformation or something like that. Um, yeah. And then, but understanding the, the technology itself, as well as the, the fundamental principles underneath that can then help drive new innovation yeah, uh, rather than the current innovation of the product. I agree with you. So I think this question related, what are the most misconceptions you have witnessed about soft robotics? So maybe something concerning uh, maybe from general public or in the community itself, misconception you have witnessed? Um, I think when I, so this is this is kind of driven towards the, the general public. When yeah. I talk with people about my work, mm -hmm. um, it seems like there is a, a strong relationship in their mind between uh, bio-inspired design or biomimetic design and soft robotics. Yeah. Um, and I think there's significant overlap between the two, but it's it's not that um, every soft roboticist is just trying to go out and and build a robotic octopus. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's one misconception that um, I always try to say, yes, this is this is one inspiration is making robots that can uh, they can move in these ways, but it's not the only thing that we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I think that's a question later. What do you think may be other inspiring living creature uh, in the nature? It's not something beyond the octopus, maybe uh, other inspiration. And also when you have this inspiration, either bio-inspired or biomatic, what maybe is the significant maybe inspiration you can replicate in your soft robot? So um, I, I was talking with a, a friend about this who's a physicist who studies uh, soft matter. Yeah. And uh, there's there's kind of a joke that that cats are uh, fluid rather than a solid because yeah. if you've if you've seen cats, they can really contort themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think a cat would be another really interesting model of uh, bio inspiration or, or biomimicry in soft robotics because they are they clearly have a, a skeleton, but yeah. behave in these really interesting ways and like to contort themselves. Yeah. Um, so perhaps a, another model besides an octopus. I'm glad that you mentioned cat because I'm cat lady and you first want to mention cat as an expression. So that's very good. <laughs> <laughs> so I think your research is very interesting. Um, I think from your research, you're trying to address the big challenges in the field. That's what I had this perception. So if you can tell us about your what is your research interest as a the BI of your lab, and what you think that oh, this is the most important challenges I have to solve in the, in my lab with my team? If you can tell us to our audience, yeah. Yes. So I work um, 
primarily on soft sensors for, for perception, um, for understanding deformation. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm thinking about applications for both soft robotics and also wearable devices and perhaps wearable robotics. Um, and the project that I am really excited about right now is using inspiration from, uh, from origami patterns mm-hmm. to pattern the sensor and get a particular prescribed performance. Yeah. Um, so for example, there's a, there's a pattern called the Miura, Miura pattern that, um, depending on how it's folded, de- depending on the angles between the pattern faces, um, it behaves like an exotic material. It behaves like, um, a non-isotropic material. Um, and so we can kind of tune the behavior of this soft material, making it out of something like, uh, silicone rubber or, mm. uh, polystyrene. Um, we can tune the behavior of that material just using the initial pattern that it's that's molded or formed as. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And I, I'm going to ask you because that's maybe a, a debate in the community that sometimes you have to linearize the material. I don't know what you think about that. Do you think we have to linearize this nonlinear material and isotropic, uh, or we just have to use them as, as it is? So I think... Definitely, given the the kind of way that we've been working as an engineering community, linearizing the behavior of the sensors does make a lot of sense. Um, But I think there's also another argument to be made for um, what new and interesting properties, what what behaviors can we get if we are using nonlinear sensors? Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I think that that is kind of an emerging question or a, a question that's becoming of more importance as we're hitting, it feels in some ways hitting the limits of how much we can linearize these sensors. Yeah. So um, if we're stuck with this behavior, if we've got this behavior and we can't do much about it, uh, what are some ways that we can subvert or use it to our advantage instead? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, for the modeling, again, I think I want to stress about the modeling of the smart material. Uh, do you think sometimes you have also to incorporate this dynamic changing behavior? Because sometimes when you look to the modeling, most of them geometric based, which is which doesn't capture uh, the dynamic behavior of the material or maybe empirical uh, parameters. So it's still you have to circumvent about how you can describe the system. Are you uh, advocating that or you advise a student to look for physics based modeling or descriptive model for this nonlinear material? Yeah, so that's uh, that's one of the first examples that I, I like to show yeah. my students of limitations of models when they they come to work in my lab. Yeah, um, is asking them to go measure the the strain response of uh, some of the silicone rubber based sensors that we have in the lab. Yeah, and say, okay, go measure it at this very low strain rate, and then go measure it at this very high strain rate. Um, and of course, a, a, a perfectly linear model that doesn't take uh, time component into account will tell you that you should get the same response, mm-hmm. um, but they don't at all. Uh, and so I think that um, thinking about incorporating some of this this behavior, like the viscoelastic effects, like yeah. um, the change in, in conductivity, change in percolation network conductivity as we, as we strain the material or deform it, 
is is going to be a really critical part of design going forward. Mm -hmm. um, so not only the the geometry base, but also the time component. Yes, that's a very good point. I think this question related we ask it all the time. Do you think as researchers in the community we fully understand the physics behind the smart material? Do you think we we understand them very well? Um. That's a good question. I, I think that I think it feels like we have a good understanding of um, the materials themselves when it comes to how those behaviors modify um, the response in a device. Mm -hmm. It feels like maybe that's where some of the translation starts to break down. Um, yeah, so I, I guess mm -hmm. my answer is yeah. kind of contingent on on where in the system you're talking about the behavior. Yeah, uh, I, I'm curious because I think in new research you try to focus in two aspects about the smart material understanding and also organic. So if I ask you what is something could be common between of them, because I think we were going to have a second soft robotics debate about whether we have to pursue new material or just try to um, make new functionality out of the morphology of the material already we have, or architected compliance. So I think maybe you're working in the both sides, but I'm curious to ask you, what is something co common between both of them for you um, as a researcher? So what are commonalities between organic, material innovations and... Yeah, and origami, what you work in, and origami design, and also smart material, another side. The morphology and the material, do you think you have to design new material, like finding new mechanical properties or electrical properties, or just you have to function them or design them in a certain shape to get what you want? Is there something common between them, or one of them is leading to understanding and enhancing the material all over? How do you see this correlation between both of them? So in, in my origami work, I'm, I'm really using um, unsophisticated materials. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's because this, this question that I have of, um, of can we, using unsophisticated materials, tune this behavior yeah. uh, is what mm -hmm. I'm really interested in at the moment. But I think that the combination of using uh, more engineered materials or, or innovative materials in combination with uh, new structural approaches yeah. has the, the possibility of, of achieving a, a better result than either alone. So there's yeah. a, a bit of um, synthesis there. And so, yeah, I think that I personally am, am driven by this, this origami, the structural morphology question, yeah. but um, there's no reason in the future not to consider using an innovation, innovative material with this approach. Yeah, and that's a very good point, yeah. So I'm curious to ask you about what is the biggest, what are the biggest technological roadblocks that could face off robotics in short term and longer term? Maybe for your research first and then for the field of soft robotics in general. So I think the, the question of integration with um, with rigid materials and other like uh, front end electronics is is always a pressing one. Uh, mm -hmm. So if I have this sensor, how do I do the readout? How do I amplify it? Uh, what is that interconnection between my soft sensor and uh, a chip look like? 
How do we make that robust? How do we make that survive? How a robot is behaving? Uh, those sorts of questions. Um, mm -hmm. I think another another pressing question um, is that that is both pressing and and longer scale is this question of control of uh, soft actuators. So if you have a, a continuum actuator, how do you how do you really control this with the the fidelity that you you want for a particular application? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting point about the control. Uh, I think that's something we had in the first soft robotics debate about morphology computation vs the control of soft robotics. If we have to design new controller or incorporating morphological parameter to enhance the control design. What is your take about the current control techniques for soft robotics? Do you think we have to enhance them or they can be used in modular technique, for example, to, to make certain behavior? How, how do you think about the control techniques used currently for soft robotics? So my read as, as not a controls person yeah. um, is, is that it seems to me like the system could benefit from a, a combination of both. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're, if you're talking about relatively simple behavior, um, um, for example, dumping a, a thousand robotics out in or a thousand robots out in a field and asking them to to survey some particular properties and, and crawl over rocks and things like that, um, then it seems like a, a morphological computation approach would would be more appropriate there because you don't have the um, you don't have the resources for intensive uh, central processing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but at the same time, if you're if you're talking about an application where um, you want a robot to be to be wearable and interface with a person or or do some sort of uh, task that involves human robot cooperation or teaming, um, then it seems like you you might value both some uh, some morphological computation at like an end effect or an actuator as well as uh, central processing to understand. Uh, the safety, the pose, the relationship to the person, as well as what's required for the activity, the yeah. task. Yeah. I would like to ask you about uh, reproducibility for the um, soft robotics, especially in material. I don't know what your what your position about this issue. Sometimes if you're designing a certain structure with smart material or passive material, sometimes you have this issue in the field about reproducibility. So I don't know what you think about that, how we can solve this issue, since you're working in that heavily. So, uh... so how, we, how we approach the issue of reproducibility. Yeah, a... yeah, because sometimes it's tricky sometimes to get the same result uh, in the paper. And just if you wanted to enhance a design or something like that. Do you think there's a huge issue here or from your experience uh, about reproducibility? So from uh, certainly from my personal experience, we do a lot of work in my lab in, um, in kind of thinking about new fabrication processes. Yeah. Um, and so there's always a trade-off there between not investing too much, um, too much time or energy into um, a new fabrication process versus how do we really um, make sure that this process itself is repeatable that we're using to, to fabricate this device. Um, and so I think as, as the field starts to uh, kind of value or promote 
certain materials, certain technologies, yeah. certain fabrication approaches, um, and the ability to to get more precision in those approaches uh, gets better. That that our re- reproducibility will also get better. So mm-hmm. I'll I'll give an example of yeah. um, if you think about an additive manufacturing system that you can you can buy and put in your home now for you know three hundred dollars or so um, is is much better than the system that I used in my machine shop as an undergraduate yeah. um, some some more than a decade ago. Yeah. Um, and so I think as as those technologies improve, as they're starting to be commercialized, um, they'll also help reproducibility of every device that we're using. Yeah, I can't agree with that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So during your work, were there any direction you thought would work out very well, but empirical result proved something maybe interesting or wasn't expected? So you had this model and or analytical solution, and and then empirical result was really proved something you wasn't you didn't expect it at all. Um, so something that I am I am currently working on now actually came out of uh, being inspired by variable sniff disk actuators that mm-hmm. have. Uh, onboard heaters and then are using a, a phase change in a metal to to change the stiffness. Mm-hmm. And um, I was using heaters made out of liquid metal, out of gallon stand, and um, heating these these materials up to about 70 or 80 C. And the devices themselves would not survive very long. I think my record was five or six hours mm-hmm. uh, just because the heaters would fail. Um, and so I, I talked to a, a collaborator and I, I I knew he worked in a similar area and mentioned this problem to him. And he said, oh, I've seen that too, let's study it. Um, and so that's that's led to some current work in studying um, the effects of high current density. So uh, current density is on the order of one kiloamp per centimeter squared um, to, to understand how that affects gallon stand, um, mm-hmm. particularly in these stretchable platforms of so thinking about soft robotics. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, yeah. So I think that's a question here about uh, intelligence and soft robotics. To which level do you think the developers of robotics are intelligent? And also I'm curious, what's your definition? Or when you say that that's really the intelligent or optimum intelligence for soft robots? So I think when we, when we think about intelligence with robots and, and soft mm-hmm. robotics in particular, it is the is the the capacity for processing and understanding environment and task well suited to the task in the environment? Um, and so I think that that these questions about um, are we using morphological computation? Are we using central processing? Um, are highly application dependent um, mm-hmm. and highly dependent on whether or not soft robots currently have a high enough level of intelligence to to complete the task that we want them to complete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If there's example, because I think most of our guests say that there's a problem, for example, in designing a reliable sensor for soft robotics. Do you think sensor design is still challenging in terms of the quality? And how do you see this kind of a challenge for designing sensing for soft robots? Yeah, so I think designing high quality and high accuracy sensors is still a challenge for soft robotics. Mm-hmm. Um, there are 
several several sub challenges that I think about with my work, of course, um, the question of of time dependent behavior that we touched on before. Yeah. Um, there's also specific specificity to a particular mode of deformation. Mm-hmm. Um, so can we can we use sensors to provide some of that information about uh, bending versus strain? Um, and and then as well as of course the repeatability question. So yeah. you know I can fabricate some number of these in my lab, but they're all going to have slightly different properties. And and so how do we translate that to uh, a, a robot that may need uh, a very high density of these to understand um, the deformation of of an actuator or mm-hmm. its contact with the environment? Yeah, yeah. I think there's also a question. Uh, I think you can uh, tell us about how how we can embed emotion in soft robotics. For example, we hear sometimes uh, there's some uh, research about designing a robot that can feel pain. But I think I, I, it sounds hot a little bit because I think pain is maybe different uh, from we can feel what is pain looks like. But do you think in soft robots we can um, design uh, material that could have sort of emotions that can feel pain. Do you think that something could be visibly done and so forth? It's a really interesting question that it feels like there's a couple of levels to that. So mm-hmm. I think certainly through through a combination of, of materials and structure, you could build a robot that that understands self-damage and interprets that as, as pain or um, as counter to some objective. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the then there's the second question of emotion about like what does that pain mean, yeah. um, or what does that that damage to self mean? Um, that I don't I don't know if we should or could design that into a robot. Um, and then of course emotions um, beyond pain about. Um, you know, how does how does the robot feel? Well, that's, hmm. yeah. I I guess there are ways to communicate emotion based on on pose on on uh, yeah. physical position of the robot um, that are really interesting. But I don't know how that might correlate to to processing mm-hmm. what the what the robot is actually doing. But why you said we should or could do that? Why do you think that? Um. So I think if we're if we're talking about a robot interacting with a person in some way, um, emotions like displaying inner state in some way to to a person that that mm-hmm. anthropomorphizes it um, certainly conveys more information and may convey it in a more visceral way than the robot saying um, I am confused here or um, something is mechanically wrong or mm-hmm. I'm I'm stuck in a corner. Um, but I don't, I don't know what it would mean, really, mm-hmm. for, um, for that outward conveyance of, like, state to be, to be integrated into, um, an, uh, like, a, an artificial intelligence's yeah. emotions. Yeah, that's the deep point. Yeah. I like your point. Yeah. So, Going back to nonlinearities, because that, that's something Professor George White said, said that nonlinearities can bring opportunities to soft robotics like buckling. But I'm curious to ask you, since you have this uh, really um, expertise in the smart material and material design, so what kind of nonlinearities you can keep or remove 
for soft robots, maybe beneficial and sometimes could be detrimental for soft robots. So how you can assess if this linear neurosis could be beneficial or detrimental for soft robot? Mm. Okay, so I think that um, if you are if you're designing and you're getting this non-linearity to for for example if um, if you're getting buckling yeah. and uh, you you want the actuator to uh, survive under uh, or, or be able to to hold a particular load that's undesirable behavior but that same buckling behavior mm -hmm. might be really beneficial for a different type of actuator. Um, so I think understanding understanding the material and the mechanics when when making these actuators is um, critical to to understanding when those nonlinearities may be beneficial or may be detrimental. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. And I think also that's maybe student maybe ask this question when you work in soft robotics because it's highly it's interdisciplinary. So sometimes you have to understand terms from material science and control aspect and electric engineering. So if there's something I like advice, how you can uh, understand or be at the same page with different uh, uh, groups from different background. I think for you it's easy sometimes, but but sometimes um, most of software protesters not really expert in material science, and sometimes you have a hard time to deliver your message. For example, the modeling you need modeling so that you can tell what kind of parameter, mechanical parameter, expecting from the material groups. I don't know how you see this communication in soft robotics. Do you think there's a challenge here or not? I think it's definitely a challenge anytime you have uh, different groups come together and you need yeah. them to use the same terminology or to, to use the same enough terminology. Yeah. Um, I, one of the things I've been really excited about in, in kind of moving into soft robotics is seeing the wealth of workshops that invite um, invite people from different backgrounds in to present their work and to talk about uh, particular challenges. Because I think once you're once you're focused on a challenge or application rather than just ever, okay, let's everyone sit down at the table and we're we're gonna agree once and for all what soft means. Yeah. Um, once you're focused on the applications or the problem, that kind of um, discussion about what terms mean. Uh, mm -hmm. What is this principle? What is this new material? Kind of naturally, uh, naturally falls out, and yeah. uh, so I think the things like workshops are really exciting for that. And also, of course, reading, uh, reading pretty broadly. Yeah. Um, so skimming at least other other journals um, and conference proceedings is is really important for each researcher to develop that facility yeah. and kind of at least passing knowledge in what's going on in other domains. Yeah, yeah. That's all about the communication as well as simplifying terms. Yeah, right. So I think this question also about um, a very inter interesting one, I think, for uh, in the episode we asked about how we can, can we ensure a diversity of approaches that get exposure deserve and prevent and overinvestment in limited set techniques. I think that's uh, that's point about academics tend to establish a strong belief about uh, other field and and sometimes come as arrogance elitism and discouraging exploration ideas out of the mainstream. It's it's sometimes it's happened, and and the question is how can we enable more inclusive culture around combative ideas? I think we mentioned that about that there is limited funding and grants and sometimes 
there's a severe competition between groups. Uh, so I don't know how you see uh, this question, how we can enable more intellectual inclusive culture around combative ideas. So I think framing the problem, everyone framing the problem for itself as yeah. um, what is the best way to reach the solution yeah. and uh, rather than how can I how can I, I demonstrate my solution might be one way to do that. Yeah. Um, there have been several times where I, I've been at conferences and, and been talking about my approach to a problem and then um, someone particularly from a different domain says, well, what if you what if you tried this? What if you did this instead? Um, it kind of um, changed my understanding of the problem or made me rethink my approach a little bit. Um, and so I think if you can bring people together at, uh, at lower in lower stakes ways to encourage that discussion and encourage, well, what if my what if my approach was different? What yeah. if I did this differently um, so that ego is not so much involved yeah. would be um, would be some way to to get around that issue. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah. And I, I would like to excuse this question about inclusion in general, because I think that's something uh, I don't know if you would like to enter that. But for example, in inclusion, sometimes because we we have this initiative in the field about uh, uh, in robotic science system conference inclusion program. And sometimes I see there's no women, especially women of color for me. And uh, like there's no much many women in the soft robotics field and robotics in general. And sometimes you be sometimes conditionally accepted. So it, I, I don't know what your experience, because I think you now a successful figure for uh, many women. So if there's something you can uh, share with us, is was it challenging for you uh, to prove yourself? Um, how do you see how we can enhance inclusivity in our field and robotics field in general? Um, I don't know if you would like to enter this question. Um, if many girls may be underrepresented uh, groups listening, interested in soft robotics, what kind of uh, thoughts you can share about inclusion in, in robotics and soft robotics? I, I would be happy to. So I teach at Smith College, which yeah. is uh, home to the first ABET accredited engineering program yeah. at a women's college. Um, and so all of my students identify as women um, or gender minorities. Um, and it has really been a pleasure seeing this, this group of students who mm -hmm. um, are, are unlike other many other groups in engineering, um, really get interested in the same applications, the same technology. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I first wanna say that it's, it's not, um, it's not gender specific yeah. or it shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, there are many ways I think of an improving inclusivity in robotics and in soft robotics. Um, I think one of them is, is focusing work on applications that matter mm -hmm. um, and explaining to, to general audiences or, or demonstrating to general audiences why this work has impact on their lives. Yeah. Um, so for example, um, talking about human robotic collaboration um, or social robotics or, or robotics for healthcare, things like that are, um, are really good at sparking the imaginations of uh, students who may be in middle school or high school or college and considering a career 
um, or moving into robotics. Um, so I think mm -hmm. being being also welcoming of different um, different approaches and different thoughts and different backgrounds, not only backgrounds about um, mm -hmm. someone's racial background or ethnic background, but mm -hmm. as well um, what college they went to, what part of the country they grew up or what country they grew up in. Um, being welcoming and non-stereotypical of that is also an important part of inclusivity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a good point. But I'm, I'm curious to ask you, in and in a, in a, a maybe a wider spectrum, do you think there is, of course, that's something very important, but do you think what kind of strides we have to do? Because sometimes human beings, uh, sometimes uh, I think they are already uh, ingrained with bias. So how do you think that's something we can um, make it effective so that we can ensure there is really inclusion? in terms of representation, in terms of ideas? Do you think that we have to make like regulation for that as a, as a solution? So I think that this is something that, um, that spans from the, I'm, I'm thinking particularly on the academic side, but yeah. some of these uh, recommendations would be applicable to any organization. Yeah. Um, but when we think about who's in our labs how they got there, where they go next. Yeah. Um, it's really important to, to step back and consider, even, even if I'm not a biased in any way person, mm -hmm. are the ways that I teach, the ways that I run lab meetings, the ways that I select students into the group, um, and what I prioritize about student background, are those things that are critical to the way that I run my group, yeah. Um, as well as are those critical to uh, student success. Yeah. So one really small example would be um, prioritizing students that already have research experience, um, mm -hmm. in particular have already published, yeah. coming into a PhD program. Um, and so there are, there are many, many very strong, very excellent students that may come from um, primarily undergraduate colleges, primarily uh, undergraduate universities that for many, for a myriad of reasons, did not have access to research experiences, particularly research experiences in robotics before uh, applying to a PhD program. Mm -hmm. And so um, considering is that is that a critical piece of students' success in lab, uh, coming in having published or coming in having research experiences? Yeah. Um, and if it is, then how can you how can you mitigate that problem at the yeah. undergraduate level? How can you provide experiences to undergraduates? How can you yeah. um, maybe go and give a talk about applying to REU programs at at a um, for example an HBCU? Um, so uh, um, thinking it at some ways about on a structural level, mm -hmm. what prevents uh, this diversity and inclusion from happening? Yeah, I think that's very true. Uh, if you do that as undergrad, it will be, yeah, you have to do it at the root beginning. But, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. We are close to end. We have few questions. Uh, I would like to ask you how we can ensure the development of robotics is beneficial, is going to be beneficial to humanity as a whole. I'm asking this question because there's a short anecdote about that. Uh, I, I, I think that something happened. There's maybe sometimes you're using material which is toxic for certain biomedical application 
And uh, some researchers are saying that it's okay to use toxic material, since it will end up in publication. And that's uh, unfortunately it happens sometimes. Uh, of course, I'm not making a sweeping generalization, but that's kind of response sometimes uh, happen in reality that uh, maybe the material is toxic, but you ended up choosing for just research only. Um, and when you ask this question, some guests say that it's okay for a short term to use this material and then you can change. But I'm not sure uh, because sometimes if you design the material and you have different properties, it will be completely different in designing the shape, etc. I don't know what you think about that in terms of what you design and how to be beneficial at the end of the day. Um, this is something, this is a, a problem I feel really fortunate in um, having the students that I do in my lab because mm -hmm. they continue to press me about not only what are we doing in the lab, but what does it look like in the wider world? That's so, great. okay, great, we've, we've yeah. built this, this sensor, but what does it mean when we have to dispose of it? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think having um, having conversations with people even outside of soft robotics about um, what we're designing and what the something like life cycle analysis or what yeah. the use case with a person might look like um, might not be something that we naturally think about, but having those perspectives can be really useful even when starting to design. Because yeah. yes, if we design with a material that is is toxic or um, probably not a, a concern to adult, but maybe to children. Um, mm. At what point then do we go back and, and redesign the same things yeah. with completely non-toxic materials? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very important. I, maybe I can, I don't know if that's relatable, but I think about the publisher, pressure to publish as well. Sometimes you don't have enough room to think deeply about this point you mentioned sometimes yeah it's such a pressuring maybe that's maybe a point as well yeah so, i think and, yeah. and and also if there's there's certainly a concern if you were to use um a material that was non-toxic and non-problematic in any way yeah. um are there established protocols for for working with that and for fabricating it um yeah. so there are there's certainly a trade-off there between the publisher parish model yeah. um, producing research quickly um, and taking the time to to stop and consider what the the slightly larger picture does look like. Absolutely, yeah. So, do you think ego is important for the researcher? I I do. I do think ego is important. Um, I think it takes a certain um, confidence in self mm -hmm. and audacity to say. Um, to any time wake up and say, I'm going to do something that yeah. no one else has done before, even if it's an incremental uh, change. And yeah. so, yeah, self-confidence and ego is is a big part of it. Wonderful. Okay. So which book inspired you? Maybe in a field or maybe in personal life inspired you? Um, I remember reading um, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, and then there's there's a second book in the series, Parable of the Talents. Um, and that really, I read that when I was about 13 or 14. Mm -hmm. And um, the the narrative of the the series is about this, this woman who lives in, I believe it's Los Angeles, yeah. um, kind of in, in the United States is, um, as climate change and a lot of other disasters have kind of beset, befallen the country. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that really made me consider thinking about engineering as as a piece Mm -hmm. of solving the world's problems rather than the thing that will solve the world's problems. That's interesting, yeah. And I have a perception you have a strong relationship with your student. I think that's a relationship between the mentor and mentee. May I ask you, what is the recipe for the good relationship between the mentor and mentee? Because we hear a lot of struggle in grad school about this relationship between mentor and mentee. How you do that work? Um, one thing I, I always start out my beginning of the year lab meetings with is um, mm. encouraging students to think about what they want to get out of a research expectation. Yeah. And, and it's a little bit different because they're at the undergraduate level than the graduate. Yeah. Um, but I think this also applies to, to anyone in a, in, in a mentee role, yeah. uh, um, is the mentor understands what the mentee wants to get out of that experience um, and says, okay, this is how I can help you, um, or these are the things that I encourage you to do on your own. Um, and then really working with them to develop a roadmap to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so every, every semester I have students, I work with students, we sit down together, uh, we make a calendar, and mm-hmm. I say, okay, if your goal is to present at this conference, this is, um, why don't we decide together week to week what you're going to need to do to get there and publish those results. Yeah. And if I ask you what are the most important quality you have gained well being in academia, something you have to maintain in your academic journey? I think um, something that, that in academia and, and working on projects has uh, I've developed over time is um, a patience mm-hmm. for research progress and um, a patience for when things are going well and when things are going not so well. Um, that that doesn't mean that 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 trade-off between research going well and research not going well mm-hmm. is is kind of a give and take relationship. Um, I feel like I've developed more tolerance for that over time. Yeah, it is not easy. I think that's. Uh... This tolerance, I think uh, it takes a lot of, uh, I don't know, it, I think it's a struggle in, in academic academia in general. So it's not easy sometimes, yeah. And if I ask you what, is, what was the best advice was given to you as a person or professionally, and it was a life changing for you? Um, best advice? Mm-hmm. So some of the best advice that I've gotten is to go where your people are. Um, which is, you can interpret that in a lot of different ways. Um, But when I think about research experiences and um, labs and jobs that I've been in, Mm -hmm. where I didn't feel very productive or I didn't feel um, like a very productive engineer, it's because um, my my match with what people were working on, um, with what my skill set was for the job, Mm. Um, was isn't was not very well matched. But when I went to yeah. places where um, immediately people are asking interesting questions, and I'm I'm thinking about them, and I'm giving answers, and they're they're building off of that, um, and it feels like there's a, a shared collaboration towards a problem. Yeah, um, is is where I've worked really well um, and felt most productive. So I, yeah. I think this is really brilliant advice and can apply for personal life and professional as well. So that's really brilliant advice. Yeah. Yeah. 
Do you have final words for soft robotics community you would like to say? Um, if I can go back to the, the question about inclusion and soft robotics yes. for a second. Um, definitely, please open up your labs, open up your demonstrations, show as many people as you can the cool stuff that you're working on. That's a very good message. And I think, I hope we can do more strides in inclusion and effectively, realistically speaking. So I, I, I thank you once again for your time. And that was a thoughtful and enjoyable discussion, Chris. Thank you once again for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you.